Okay, let's turn over to uh, Judges chapter 13. And we'll, we'll, we'll start there in just a moment. I want to give a little bit of a recap. We uh, are on our third message in a series on Nazarite consecration. And we've been talking about what it means biblically, what biblical Nazarites were. And how we feel like the Lord is calling us to a whole season, a whole year of uh, uh, special abandonment, special consecration to the Lord. And uh, using the picture of the Nazarites in the scripture as a sort of a springboard for us. And so a couple weeks ago, we went right through number six and just explained, you know, biblically what were the the details of one that was a Nazarite and the, the vow that the Nazarites would make. And then last week, we talked about grace, because it's real easy uh, when you begin to talk about consecration and sanctification and holiness unto the Lord, things like that, that we can get thrown off and uh, begin to engage in like a religious spirit and get into religious striving. And, and so last week, we talked about grace that enables our hearts to run headlong into God. And how oftentimes, you know, people look, uh, they look at grace as a, a way to sort of get a pass and to, you know, just, just to sort of find the exit door so you don't have to, you know, go hard after the Lord. And, and we talked about last week how grace actually enables us to go harder after the Lord. And that's, what, that's the way Paul described it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I, I thank God I labored more abundantly than all the other apostles. And he goes, yet it wasn't me. It was the grace of God in me. He says, I was laboring with the grace of God. And, and we talked about how it's in grace, by love, that we offer ourselves as a sacrifice, as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And so uh, I was, someone had asked me some questions afterwards. They said, so you talked about how the Lord prepares works uh, beforehand that we should walk in them. And they said, so what, what is that equal? And I said, well, all the works that we do in Christ, they're all by grace. And they said, so like brushing your teeth. And I said, well, no, not, not, no. I mean, right, no, not brushing your teeth. Uh, you don't need necessarily grace to brush your teeth. Though there is a grace that sustains us to live. I mean, the fact that there's air and we can breathe it, that's grace, you know. But when I'm saying works that God has prepared beforehand to walk in them, I'm talking about the, any work that's a lean of the heart towards righteousness. Any work that is a, uh, uh, a kingdom building work or a lean of your heart toward righteousness. Even the, the most minuscule, it's, it's how Jesus identified works. He said, if you will even bring a cup of water uh, to a prophet, he goes, you know, that has a reward attached to it. Even the, the littlest work done in with a heart that that wants to love God the Lord takes note and he actually rewards it he enables it by grace and 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 so he's the one that makes us able to do the work and then he rewards us for doing the thing that he enabled us to do that's a real good deal I mean he actually is he's the one that empowers us to do the work and then after we do it we go whoa I could have never done that without God and he turns around and goes you did such a good job we go, but um, I, I couldn't have done it without, there's no way. He goes, you're so awesome. Here, have a reward. Like, this is a really good deal because there's no chance I could have done what I did. And God goes, but you're so great. And, and we say, you're so great. 
And so we get to spend the rest of our eternity talking to the Lord, with him talking to us about how much we love each other and how great the other one is. <laughs> and so uh, grace is what carries us. And so I, I explained to them, they said, so like brushing your teeth, is that a work? I go, well, not exactly, but it's the lean of the heart. I go, for instance, if somebody says I'm going to not eat chocolate because I'm going to get my pleasure from the Lord and not from chocolate. That is a work that, by grace that actually pleases the heart of the Lord. It blesses his heart that you would do such a thing. And he enables it by grace and he actually rewards that. You go, like, not eating candy kisses. That's right. Anything where your heart leans towards righteousness with a desire to bless the Lord. Now, we don't earn anything from the Lord. That's the point. Grace is what enables us. But there's things that we can do, like, you know, if we, if we refrain from seeking our own pleasure in certain ways, or um, if we seek the Lord in a, a more abandoned style way, or if we refrain from getting our entertainment from other things, the Lord enables that by grace, and then it blesses his heart, and he actually rewards those things. And so, it's just a great, great deal in the kingdom. The exchange rate is incredible. And his kindness is, is amazing. And so uh, when we're talking about consecration, we're not talking about sort of prune-faced, white-knuckled, I'm going to be holy and that's just it. You know, I'm just going to be so holy. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a heart that's alive in love. Man, I love you, Jesus. I don't want anything to get in the way of me and you. I am, I am moving in love with you. And I want to throw myself at you in a radical way, Lord. I want to pursue you. And it's, it's out of a heart that's filled with love and, and it has its sails filled with grace that we are able to offer ourselves to the Lord. And so from there, then, I want to take this week and I want to talk about some biblical uh, pictures of Nazarites, and I want to utilize them as, I want to tell the real stories, but I also want to utilize the symbolic features in their stories so that their stories would instruct us, because I'm pretty sure that the reason why the Lord gives us the pictures of several Nazarites in the Bible is to instruct our hearts so we can glean courage and, and uh, you know, edification from, and we can be cautioned. And so I'm going to talk about uh, Samson and Samuel, because they are two starkly contrasting pictures of Nazarites in the Scripture. And so I want to just really give a profile of each, and, uh, and then I, I want to ask the Lord to really just to uh, exhort our hearts by looking at the, the two stories of these two men. So in the Bible, we've mentioned this before, there are three uh, men who were Nazarites from their birth. John the Baptist, Samson, and Samuel. Now it's interesting, there's many different parallels between uh, these three and contrasts between these three men. With Samson and with John the Baptist, both of them had an angel come to their parents before they were born, and say, this one is a Nazarite. You need to take note of how you raise them. A sovereignly identified, divinely commissioned reality that those two 
were to walk in. This one, both of them had angels. They said, this one is a Nazarite. Make sure you watch. Be careful how you raise them. With the, uh, with the uh, situation with Samuel, though, it's a little different. Samuel's mother says to the Lord, if you'll give me a son, a razor won't touch his head all the days of his life. In other words, we, whereas we see sort of the Lord sovereignly initiate it with John the Baptist and with Samson, with Samuel, what we see is the heart of hunger in this intercessory woman, Hannah, and she is broken because she's barren, and she cries out to the Lord and says, if you'll give me a son, he will be a Nazarite from the day of his birth. And it's amazing how her intercessions, and we'll talk about them a little bit more in a moment, but how her intercessions move the heart of God, and Samuel is what comes forth. Now, another thing that's interesting about all three of these men is that all three of them, their mothers were barren. All three of them, their mothers were barren, and they were children that were born because of intercession. I mean, that speaks loudly of the value of a broken-hearted, praying parent touching the heart of God in an area of woundedness and the Lord's attentiveness to those prayers and his willingness to answer. He, he doesn't just give them you know, children. He gives them uh, divinely set-apart ones. He gives them deliverers. Uh, both Samson and Samuel were judges in the land, divinely anointed by God to deliver the, uh, the Israelites from the Philistines. John the Baptist, divinely anointed by the Lord, well, for five reasons, but to deliver the people from their sin and point unto Messiah to come. John the Baptist's ministry is tremendous. Uh, I'd really like to spend some weeks on John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist doesn't do any miracles, but he encounters the Lord in dramatic ways. He, he references the fact that the Father continued to speak to him. He hears the Father speak audibly from heaven when he's baptizing Jesus. He sees the Holy Spirit as a dove falling on Jesus. But he prophesies the two most, I mean, I don't even know what you would call them. The two most intense prophecies in the history of Israel. Number one, that's the Son of God. That's a huge prophecy. Like, that's way better than, yea, and thus saith, you're going to get your water bill paid. I mean, that's him. That's the Son of God. That's Messiah. He's the one that all of history will hinge upon. All human time frames hinge upon this man's life. That's prophecy number one. Number two, the axe is laid to the root. And what he, said, what he was saying to that is this. Look, this system of religiosity, this false pharisaical, sadduceical, you know, false religious system, it's going to come under judgment. And even to this level, the nation of Israel is going to be cut down. Beloved, that is an intense prophecy. Two of the most intense prophecies, maybe the most intense prophecies ever, there's the Son of God, and judgment is coming. The nation of Israel will be cut down. Woo! That's a powerful prophetic ministry. And so, 
these pictures of these Nazarites, I'm, I'm convinced that they're given to us to, uh, to instruct us, to exhort us, to encourage us. And so I'm going to just land on Samson and Samuel tonight. And, and here's what I think. Those that resonate with the message of being a Nazarite, those that resonate with it, what you see in Samuel and Samson is with Samuel, you see just how far this thing can go when somebody says yes to that Nazarite DNA, that, that consecrated life of pursuing God with wholehearted abandonment. With wholehearted abandonment. You see in Samuel just how far this thing can go. And, and, and then with Samson, <laughs> you see the counter. You see just how far negative it can go when one actually says, that's what I feel like, that's who I am, but they actually don't go for it with their whole heart. In other words, Samson, he, he has the, think about it, he has the angel, he has the, the, the prophetic swirl around his birth, Whereas John the Baptist had the angel of the Lord once, Samson's parents get the angel of the Lord twice as a confirmation that this, this man is truly called and anointed by God as a deliverer. And what we see with Samson is what happens when somebody sort of plays games with their destiny. It's, it's one of, it's, I mean, to me, the story of Samson is one of the saddest stories in the scripture. And so uh, we're going to use both of them. And that's my point tonight. I'm trying to use both of these pictures to, to uh, pierce and penetrate our hearts, to instruct us, to give us courage to go for the Lord, and also give us a little like, eh, don't, don't, you know, don't do the halfway thing. You know, go, all, go all out. Because there's so much available for the one that will go all out, and then the halfway thing is not good. So that's my main point. Halfway thing is not good. All out is good. And so let's look at uh, these two lives. I just wrote this down. I said, Samuel's life is an incredible picture of power and glory, while Samson's life is a horrible picture of power and shame. Intense. So this morning, I did Samuel first, and then I did Samson, and we kind of left on a bummer. So (laughs) I'm going to do Samson first, and we'll leave on Samuel. Amen. (laughs) Samson, let's walk through it. Judges 13. And I'm going to do, I'm going to just tell this story because I'll do better telling it than taking you to all the verses. You find the whole story of Samson in Judges 13 through 16, the whole story. And you can read the whole thing in like 15 minutes. It's pretty brief. And it's interesting to me because we have really no legacy of, of Samson. We have a few pictures of great exploits that are mentioned by the writer of Hebrews that, man, he had incredible, powerful things he did. But we do not have a legacy of this man. In fact, he's not mentioned anywhere else except for that one mention in Hebrews. No other legacy of the man's life. Samuel is uh, mentioned at other times about how he was, you know, anointed, uh, minister to the Lord, man of integrity, godliness, all these different things. Several different times Samuel's mentioned Samson only once, and it's just a, 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 a real limited reference. All right, let's get the story. Judges 13, here's the story of his birth. Verse 3. 
It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren, have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Powerful. So uh, the woman goes and tells her husband what happens, and he can't believe it. And so she has to ask the Lord to send the angel again. And the angel of the Lord comes again and shares the whole thing again with with her husband, and then she does. She gets pregnant, she conceives, she has Samson. Now, Samson was called a Nazarite from birth, and he was to deliver the people from the Philistines. And that's how it worked. For about 450 years in Israel, there were judges, there wasn't a king, there were judges that were um, giving leadership militarily uh, to the nation, Really, the Lord was the leader, and he was employing the judges to carry out exploits to, to fight off the, the you know, marauding raiders and, and uh, opposing nations. So Samson's calling, specifically, was to bring deliverance from the Philistines. Now, here's what the Lord does with him. The Lord, in chapter 14 of Judges, the Lord calls him to marry a Philistine woman. And his parents are like, couldn't there be like a woman who's like an Israelite? Like, couldn't we stay in the, like, <laughs> the stream, you know? And uh, what the scripture tells us in, in Judges 14.4 is that the Lord essentially was going to use Samson to infiltrate the, the Philistines. And there was an unusual arrangement back in that time. They did these marriages where uh, a man and woman at times would be married and they had this one version of marriage where the woman would actually stay in her township and the man would stay in his. And, and the commentators say that that's apparently what Samson was, was doing with this, with this marriage arrangement. And so the Lord calls him to marry this Philistine woman so that he can, so Samson can be one that infiltrates uh, the Philistines and bring judgment and, and you know, fight them off from them infringing upon the Israelites. So here's what happens. Samson and his family are going down, and I can tell you basically the whole story in about 10 minutes. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to kind of rattle off the story of Samson. Samson and his family are going to go down. They're going to uh, meet the woman. They're going to set up the arrangements for the marriage. A lion begins to try to attack uh, Samson and his family. The Spirit of the Lord comes on Samson. He kills the lion. He brings his family down. He's going to go back past the lion, and he sees that a a group of bees has made its nest there in the, in the lion, and he's, he's uh, eating honey out of that, 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 that beehive that forms in the carcass of this lion. And, and the commentators will tell you it's really unclear what Samson's vow was. Obviously, he wasn't to do uh, grape juice or, or wine, and he wasn't to cut his hair, but there's a question about the whole thing about death because he's clearly touching dead animals and dead people. And so some commentators see it as he was just in his heart, just kind of already in compromise. Well, here's what happens. He's looking at this lion with this beehive, and he's eating the honey, and he, he decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess with these Philistines. 
And so 30 of her family's companions are at the wedding, and he comes up with a riddle, and he says, if you can solve this riddle, then I'll give you guys uh, all a new suit of clothing, and if you uh, can't solve it, then you all have to give me one. 30 suits of clothing for me or 30 suits of clothing for you. And what you have here, what you see, this is the way I'm seeing it, is you see a man anointed by God, called by God, who's really undisciplined. He's really uh, sort of presumptuous, impetuous, kind of just does stuff off the top of his head. And um, that little game that he does with that riddle, that gets him and his wife in real trouble because the, the Philistines, they approach his wife and they say, hey, you got to tell us what the story is on this riddle. And they put real pressure on. They said, we're going to kill you if you don't. And this is just, this wasn't the Lord. This was just this guy just sort of being loose, just kind of being undisciplined. And so they say, we're going to kill you to his wife. And she says, you got to tell me the, the answer to the riddle because uh, you don't love me. You hate me, <laughs> you know. And, and so he tells it to his wife. His wife tells it to the Philistines. And from there on, we have this cycle of rage, anger, and unrestraint, this lack of discipline in this anointed man that's going to end him up completely losing the anointing of God off of his life. It's, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a really odd and sad story. And so here's what happens. The wife tells the details. They answer the riddle. He's then got to come up with 30 suits of clothes. He goes and kills 30 Philistines, brings the suits of clothes in, but he's enraged in his heart. That's what the scripture tells us. And so in Judges 15, what does he do? He goes, he finds himself 300 foxes, ties torches onto their tails and lets them run wild through the the fields of the Philistines and it burns the fields down. And he creates this, this circle of problems. So the Philistines are going to strike him back. And what they do is they grab his wife and her father and they kill them. And then they show up in Judah and they say, give us 3,000 Philistines. Show up in Judah and say, give us Samson. And they said, absolutely, we will give you. We'll turn him over. They said, if you don't give us Samson, we're going to to, siege you. And they turn Samson over. So because of his undisciplined kind of uh, impetuous way, he ends up being handed over by his own countrymen to the enemy, to the very ones he's supposed to be bringing deliverance from. Well, what he ends up doing is he kills a thousand Philistines because he's anointed with the jawbone of an ass. He kills a thousand of them. And, uh, and this thing just continues to, to spiral. Well, what happens? He then, in, in Judges 16, he sleeps with a Philistine prostitute and and they think they've got him. And so what does he do? He's, again, the Spirit of the Lord's on him. He uh, tears up the gates of the city and, and fights against the Philistines. And then he sees and meets Delilah. And so you have this, this cycle of this man, his unrestrained rage, his unrestrained lusts. He's anointed by God, called to be a Nazarite, but he's not consecrated. He had the angel before he was born, twice. He, I mean, he had the pedigree. He was set apart. His his mother, his father, they said yes to it. 
And because he doesn't take care of just the internal issues of his own heart, he gives himself to anger and lust until he finds himself sleeping in the lap of Delilah. Beloved, I cannot tell you how many stories I know of firsthand of men of God who are anointed, called by God, supernatural activity on their life because they refuse to take care of the inner issues, because they refuse to, to you know, sort of discipline their soul, come under the, the leadership of the Holy Spirit, allow the fruit of the Spirit to, to you know, put their flesh in subjection, because they have an unsanctified walk with the Lord, they end up, regardless of their gifting and their anointing, they end up with their head in the lap of Delilah. That's one of the most horrifying thoughts and, and see, we boggle at it because here we are and we go, no, I was at the meeting and there were people really getting out of wheelchairs. Like they really were. There was people really getting saved and demons were really going out of people. And what we misunderstand is that the anointing upon the man and the, uh, the inner issues of his heart and, and him having control, self-control over the inner issues of his, of his heart. Those are two different things. God puts the anointing on Samson to make him a deliverer for the nation. It's up to Samson to deal with the inner issues, and the unsanctified parts, so he can steward that anointing and be that deliverer that God's called him to be. And man, we watch the downfall of this man because of his anger, and his lust and his, his propensity just to do the, the random thing. Like, what was he doing with the whole lion and the beehive thing? Why, why was he doing that? It was just kind of like a, a mess, you know, just sort of had the anointing, kind of got arrogant. I'll make a, a riddle and y'all have to owe me clothes. I mean, just kind of strange. And we've seen this, how men and women of God have ended up in a really bad way because they didn't deal with the inner issues of their life. They didn't deal with you know, personal sanctification. They were anointed and called to be consecrated, but they didn't walk that thing out. And so you know the story. Samson, three different times, lays his head in the lap of Delilah. He's in, an, he's in a, a sexually immoral relationship with her. And... Uh, Finally, she prevails upon him. She vexed him, the Bible said. And she, pre- she prevails upon him and gets the secret of, her, of his strength and tells the, the, the information to the lords of the Philistines. And they come in. And this, beloved, is one of the most, I, I just don't even know. It's, this, it's one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Judges 16. Look at this in verse 20. Then she called Samson, and she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep, and he thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. See, because he had been continuing in the anointing, he'd been continuing in the power of God while he was living in compromise. Multiple compromises over a long period of time until he crosses the line And look at that next sentence. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Oh my. Beloved, the Holy Spirit 
He comes in like a mighty rushing wind and a fire, but he leaves like a dove. He's going to shake himself as at other times. He's going to bring a a mighty deliverance. He's going to step right back into that anointing and the anointing is gone. He had the angel. He had the word of the Lord. He had the destiny. He had the prophetic words. He had the anointing. He'd had other times of victory. But because of his continual compromise, not, I mean, dealing ruthlessly with those areas of unsanctified, you know, lusts in his heart, he ends up in the, in the most faith, fateful, I mean, just horrifying situation with his hair cut off. He's no longer got the anointing and the strength that God had given him. They arrest him. They gouge his eyes out. And he spends his days as a jester for Philistine parties. The man who's called to be the deliverer for the Philistines ends up being the joke at their, at their drinking parties. So when they wanted a good laugh, they'd bring out blind, old, feeble Samson. And they'd mock him until his hair began to grow. And you know the, the story his hair begins to grow. They bring him out at one of those parties. And he puts his hands on the two pillars of the, the temple of Dagon. And he pushes those pillars. And he kills more Philistines in his death than he did in his whole life. And, and you know, commentators will go, see, there's redemption in it. And I go, I, no. I don't, I don't feel so good about that. I don't ever read the story of Samson and going, yeah, the Lord got the victory. I think about it, I go, this man was a judge in Israel for 20 years. He was anointed by God to be a deliverer. He was anointed to bring deliverance from the Philistines, and he dies in the most, like, dishonorable manner. And, you know, he's just shamed as the end of his life. And I go, oh, no. And I, man, I, I, I've for a long time looked at the story of Samson, and I've said, Lord, keep me on a tight rope. Keep me on a tight leash. I don't want to go around with anointing on my life, imagining that I'm fine with God, all the while I'm compromising in areas until a day would come when I'm you know, trying to sort of do the anointing again, and it's just not there. Beloved, I believe that this is a, an instruction to all of us, to all of us who, who, who resonate with being sold out to God, with being consecrated to the Lord. The idea that we would have that in us that says, man, I want to go all the way. I want to go all the way for you, Lord. This is written for our instruction. Because we get to see what a man who was called to go all the way, so to speak, and he doesn't. He just kind of goes halfway and kind of plays games and kind of doesn't deal ruthlessly with the, the sin issues of his heart. What the end of that is. Man, it's intense. Whew. Let's look at Samuel. Let's go. Let's get to the victory. I ended on that this morning. People were like, <sighs> looking at me like, man, ow. Let's look at Samuel. Because I don't want to do the Samson. I want to do the Samuel. 
Amen. I want to do the Samuel. Just reading that story, I'm like, no, God. I'm like, run the other direction from sin. Ah, I want to do the Samuel. So Samuel has an obvious connection with John the Baptist. There are so many uh, uh, comparisons between the two. It's really, really unusual. And so I'm just going to work through a couple of them, and, and I'll make some comments on some, and some I won't. And then we'll work through a little bit of the story of Samuel's life, and then we'll pray. Because there's two, I'll tell you, there's two groups that I'm taking aim at. I'm taking aim at the Hannahs, and I'm taking aim at the Samuels. And you're going to be in one or both. You could be both of those, actually. But there are Hannahs who have uh, been barren, and the Lord wants to gift you with intercession unto bearing forth deliverers, Nazarite forerunner deliverers. There are Hannahs that are in the earth in this hour. And then there are Samuels, ones that resonate with that Nazarite forerunner DNA. And, and you don't, you know, it's just, you have that thing in your heart and you go, man, I want to be great in God. I just want to go all the way in God. And I tell you, man, if you, if you have that thing, I just want to give you everything, God. I'm saying that's not just so you can be a good person and like not cuss and pay your taxes on time. The Lord wants to anoint you with power. He, he wants to use you as a prophetic sign in the earth. Really, for real. I was coming in tonight and I felt like the Lord was just challenging my heart again and, and just reminding me that Yes, yes, you're weak. Yes, you can't do it without me. And yes, you've got to remember who you are. You've got to remember who you are. And, and not just me, us as a company. Believers in general, who we are as ones anointed with the Holy Spirit. God living on the inside. Supernatural God on the inside. It's very difficult to be average, but you can be if you desire, but... He doesn't want us to be. He wants us to be, oh, deliverers in an hour where the earth needs it. Okay, Samuel and John the Baptist. Let's give some connections between the two. Number one, both of them were raised in the way of the priesthood. Uh, John the Baptist was the son of a priest, while Samuel was raised in the tabernacle at Shiloh under Eli's care. Both of them were raised as would-be priests of the Lord. All right, secondly, I mentioned this before, but both of their mothers were barren, which caused them to cry out to the Lord for children. And then the Lord blessed them with a son. And I want to talk about in just a minute Hannah and how the Lord leveraged her barrenness that she would bring forth a deliverer. Both uh, Samuel and John the Baptist, they both uh, arose during a time of incredible crisis. In their, nation, in their nations. Uh, with with uh, John the Baptist, of course, the nation was overrun by the, the Romans. They were under tribute to Rome. And, and with, with uh, Samuel, the Philistines were having free reign. They were just kind of rolling through the land at their leisure. There was no check in place. Eli had sort of led the nation in a, in a really kind of weak way. His sons were just perverse, and the nation had just gone astray and, and turned from the Lord. And so there was no strength against the, 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 the Philistine armies. And so both of them were, uh, the Lord brought them forth at a time of incredible crisis. 
Both of them were preachers of repentance, calling the nation back to God. In fact, both of them experienced seasons of revival. You see it with Samuel when he, when he turned, there's, I'm gonna walk through the story in a minute, but he actually turns the whole situation around and the key is he calls the nation back to God and they repent wholeheartedly. Well, John the Baptist is the same thing. He goes out and begins to baptize in the Jordan. He says, you've all got to repent. You've got to turn yourself back to God. And so their messages were very similar. Now, both prophesied of the end of the prevailing religious system because of its corruption. Samuel's first prophecy as a boy, the Lord speaks to him three times in the same night. And finally, Eli goes, hey, that's the Lord speaking to you. Say, here am I, Lord, and see what the word of the Lord is. And then the Lord gives Samuel the word for Eli and his family that he's going to judge him. Now, how'd you like to be 13? Living with your discipler. And the Lord wakes you up in the middle of the night, speaks audibly to you about the judgment he's about to release on your discipler's family. And then Eli tells Samuel, says, hey, you got to tell me the whole word. Uh, God likes you? I mean, <laughs> What are you going to say? You say the whole thing and don't hold anything back. And he goes, okay. It's going to go bad for you real bad. I mean, it's just, here it is. And Eli goes, that's the word of the Lord. Wow. But that's his first prophetic word. It reminded me of Jeremiah. Jeremiah's first prophetic word is, there's a judgment coming on the nation. <laughs> there you go, teenager. There you go, prophetic ministry. Well, John the Baptist, the same thing. He said, the ax is already laid to the root. You brood of vipers. He goes, who, who, fleed, who, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And so they're operating. In, I mean, Samuel and John the Baptist are operating in the, the like a mirror calling. Well, Samuel, it's said of him that he was a prophet who had never had one word fall to the ground. John the Baptist, it's said of him that among women, there was no man greater that was born. I mean, both of them have this testimony from the scripture that just places them, I mean, way up there in terms of uh, who they were as men and who they were as ministers. Samuel, uh, his ultimate ministry was to be a judge, yes, to, to see the nation begin to be uh, more delivered from the Philistines, and he does a great job with that, but ultimately the Lord's bringing him uh, uh, forth as a prophet so he can anoint David. That really is the, the peak of his ministry. He anoints David. Well, David is a type and shadow of who? Jesus. And John the Baptist, his whole calling was to prepare the way of the Lord. And when Jesus appears, he baptizes him declares the Lord declares and thunders over him. And John the Baptist says, that's him. And so you have, you have a very similar style anointing. It's not that, not that John the Baptist is anointing, but he baptized Jesus. So Samuel anoints David. John the Baptist uh, baptizes Jesus. Uh, Samuel is then clearly the, the Old Testament picture of a Nazarite forerunner. When we see Samuel, he and John the Baptist are, are really, really linked. And uh, here's what the way we need to look at it. As a forerunner people with a heart stirred 
to be consecrated as, as Nazarites, that, that spirit, that Nazarite spirit, that Nazarite DNA. We need to look at Samuel and take courage and instruction from his life. And he is, he is the Nazarite forerunner prophetic messenger. Just as John the Baptist, and we, we resonate with John the Baptist and his ministry, this forerunner ministry, preparing the way of the Lord. We, we too see that the Lord is releasing that same spirit that was on John the Baptist. The scripture calls it the spirit of Elijah. Well, that's, what, that's exactly what Samuel was operating under. He was operating under that same spirit that John the Baptist was under. So we can look at Samuel's life and be uh, similarly instructed. And, and, and we can never forget, as a 400 people, that the Nazarite calling, that Nazarite DNA, it's running right through both of those men. That consecration, sold out heart in love to the Lord with the forerunner ministry, preparing the way of the Lord. Those things are merged. You don't do one without the other, ultimately, is the idea. All right. Let me give you three now specific distinctives about Samuel. Seeing as he, how he is a, a great symbol to us and a, a picture to us, three specific distinctives. Number one, he was a man of incredible integrity. The scriptures on two different occasions highlight Samuel as a man of incredible integrity. And so Jeremiah 15 is one of those where the Lord says, he goes, I am going to judge Israel to Jeremiah, he said it. He said, and even if Moses and Samuel were here and talking about because of their holiness, he goes, I would still judge the nation. And the Lord's highlighting Samuel as one that's totally holy, totally serving the Lord. Uh, he highlights him in that conversation with Jeremiah. Well, another verse, 1 Samuel 12. Let me just read it to you. It's where uh, Samuel is, you know, in this process of anointing Saul, where the people had gone after Saul. They wanted a king after their own heart. And Samuel says, okay, if you want a king after your own heart, that's fine. God's got a king after his own heart, which you're going to get in a minute. But you can have the king after your own heart, but Samuel says, you're turning away from the Lord in this. And he says, I want to be clear in the matter. And I'm, this isn't my doing, it's your doing. And he says, I want to call you to witness that I haven't in any way defiled myself with you guys. And so in 1 Samuel 12, verse 3, here's what he says to the people. He goes, here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. He goes, whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? He goes, if I have, I'll restore it to you. And they say, you have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. I love it. Samuel, a non-compromising Nazarite living holy and blameless in everything. And he goes, and if I have, I'll restore it. I just feel like that is a, a major point. We say Nazarite consecration, but there's a deal where you can actually say it and not live it, like what we saw with Samson, or there's a deal where you can say it and actually walk it out and have the testimony. Oh, for that. I mean, oh, I long for that. Be the one that has the testimony of actually saying what you, what you mean, meaning what you say, doing what you said. I mean, just walking the thing out, really living the deal. I, you know, I, aren't you a little bit like over the whole idea of knowing a lot of 
cool things but not living them. I want to live them. I want to live them. And that's what we see in Samuel, this man, this incredible integrity and holiness. Well, secondly, about Samuel, Psalm 99, verse 6, it's, it, it identifies him as an intercessor, which is really interesting to me. Psalm 99, verse 6, Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. And so Samuel is identified as one who called upon the name of the Lord, an intercessor, a prayer man, a man of prayer. In fact, in a minute, we're going to see where uh, Samuel engages the Philistines, and he does it through prayer. And the power of God is released and brings a great deliverance. It shifts the entire nation through this man's intercessions. So he's a man of character. He's a man of intercession. He calls on the name of the Lord. Thirdly, he's a powerful prophet. 1 Samuel 3.19, it says, that so Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and the Lord let none of his words fall to the ground. Can you imagine, beloved, what, what kind of a prophetic ministry is that? That not one of the words that the man gives ever falls to the ground. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He, he's foretelling prophetically the word of the Lord and 100% of the prophecies are right. I mean, you do that for a couple of years and everybody knows your name. It's no wonder that when he shows up to, to anoint uh, David in Bethlehem, that the town elders, they hear that Samuel's on the way. They run out to meet him. They go, is it bad? <laughs> What's about to happen? Because he's got such a powerful prophetic ministry. The Lord confirms everything he says. And it's more than even just the foretelling of the, prop- the, the, the prophecies. It's the prophetic preaching. When he when he calls the nation back to repentance, it pierces them. And they're undone. And basically, he is this plumb line of truth. This, the the uh, uh, conviction of the Holy Spirit is on him. The prophetic word is on him. And when he declares, man, it just, it just levels the playing field. He is an, uh, uh, a voice, a mouthpiece of the Lord. And beloved, that is, I mean, where the Lord wants to take this thing. A Nazarite from birth with a forerunner spirit living in consecration as a man of integrity, living in intercession as a man of prayer unto the proclamation, the word of the Lord going forth and it never returning void. The Lord says in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And I believe he's thinking of a Samuel style generation. I don't think he's thinking of the 25% right prophetic ministry in Acts 2. I think he's thinking of the word of the Lord going forth like a torch, like a fire, like a hammer, bringing forth the intended results for which the Lord sends the word. Can you imagine a whole company 
of Nazarite forerunners with the spirit of prophecy on, on them, living in consecration and holiness and intercession before the Lord, declaring the word of the Lord with power so not one word falls to the ground. Beloved, I believe it's a promise for a whole company. I believe he's a picture of that prophetic company at the end of the age under the, under the Holy Spirit, under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. All right, let's walk through his story then and let's pay attention to his mom. I like her so much. So 1 Samuel 1, verse 5. Some of these will come up on your overhead. Some of them won't. I didn't update our projection, guys. So if you got your Bible, turn there with me. Some of them will come up, some of them won't. 1 Samuel 1, 5. Beloved... The story of Samuel begins with the pain of Hannah. The story of Samuel begins with the pain of Hannah. In 1 Samuel 1.5, it says the most unusual thing about this woman. So she's married to this man Elkanah. He has two wives. His other wife uh, is is uh, Penina? It's it, it. The scripture uses a term that that it, it's her adversary. It's Hannah's adversary. Hannah's Hannah's opponent. So she didn't have a good relationship with the other wife. Well, I guess not. <laughs> a couple of women, same kitchen, probably not good. But Penina's got children. And Hannah doesn't. And uh, Elkanah loves loves Hannah, and he actually gives her uh, double portions of of, uh, uh, you know, the, the gifts. And so, First uh, uh, Samuel 1, 5, look at this. Talking about Elkanah and giving, giving to Hannah, says, but to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. And look at this phrase, although the Lord had closed her womb. Does that say the devil closed her womb? It says the Lord closed her womb. Oh my goodness. I don't know what your theology is. But the scripture says that the Lord was the one who made her barren. And what happened in her barrenness is a great pain came into her soul that birthed forth intercessions persevering intercessions because she was gripped because she was not willing to stay barren for the rest of her life. She looked at her circumstances. She looked at her opponent. She had the accusations of the enemy. She's got nothing to show for her life, no children, and she's gripped. And so she's continuously over and over and over and over crying out to the Lord to open her womb and to give her a son. And I just want to say this. I believe the Lord will starve you out until you pray. He'll starve you out until you get a hold of him in in prayer, in intercession. Hannah's name is grace. That's what Hannah means. Grace and supplication. Elkanah, his name is fire. When you get some intercession going with grace and it meets fire, come on, it gives birth to Samuel. 
That'll preach. <laughs> about to run around the room. I mean, that's what it is. The, the pain of her heart drives her into intercession. Look, I don't know if you've, you've been there. I've been there. And I, I find some of the people that I, uh, I look up to their, uh, who they are in God the most, I go, man, that person, they're just after God. And when I talk to them, they're just in their heart. They're like, oh, I'm so barren. I go, what are you talking about? Look at, they go, no, I don't have what I see in here. I've not obtained what the Lord has destined me for. And that radical gripping in their heart over barrenness, it drives them to the place of prayer. Listen, don't despise it when you're not seeing the results. Don't get into a woe is me, pity party kind of a deal. When you're barren and you're not seeing the end that God's promised, and you're not seeing the, the destiny you know, that he's put on your heart, you're not seeing the end of your intercessions, when you're barren, let it drive you into more prayer. Because the Lord wants to bring deliverance. And I tell you, it's from the wounded heart of Hannah and Elizabeth that the Lord brings forth Samuel and John the Baptist. Come on. I mean, that broken heart of barrenness, those intercessions come forth. And so she makes a vow, verse 11. She makes a vow. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. He'll be a Nazarite. And man, you know, she doesn't have the angel. She doesn't have all the prophetic words. She just has a deep desire for God to move in her life. And man, she, she says... I'll go all the way. If you'll just give me one, I will consecrate him to you. He'll be the Lord's. Verse 20. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord. Or uh, another translation says it, because the Lord has heard what I've asked. And that's what Samuel means. The Lord has heard. The Lord has heard. This is it, beloved. I I believe this. There's a whole generation of barren Hannahs. A whole generation of, of intercessors who are pained in their heart because they haven't seen the dream come to pass. And I would tell you, I believe that the barrenness is not necessarily something bad, but it could be something that the Lord has actually instituted for a season to cause the hunger to go deeper, to cause the intercession to bubble up more, you know, in a stronger way, because ultimately the Lord wants to birth a deliverer. He wants to birth deliverance in a generation. We'll never have a generation of Samuels and John the Baptist if it's not preceded by a generation of praying Hannahs. And Anna's. Beloved, that's, that's it. I look at my, the bareness of my own soul and, and the, the things I feel like the Lord's put in my heart. And I go, no, it, it hasn't come to pass. Where is it, God? Where is the promise? And those areas of pain, they drive me in intercession. I know he's the Lord who hears. The Lord has heard Samuel. It's coming. 
He's coming. You got to lean in. You got to stay there under that pain. So I already explained to you Samuel's first prophecy. He prophesies Eli out of office. And it says that the, the, the boy Samuel, he ministered to the Lord. And it says he grew in favor with man and with the Lord. He ministered to the Lord in a little linen ephod before the Lord. At a young age, he just continued to worship God and serve before the Lord in the tabernacle there at Shiloh. Well, here's what happens. The wayward nation, they get presumptuous. They decide, we're going to take matters into our own hands. We're going to do this deal. We're going to get the Philistines out of here, and we're going to go for it. They're not anointed. They're not even serving the Lord. They're just presumptuous. And so what do they do? They decide they're going to go and attack the Philistines at Aphek. This is 1 Samuel 4. And they attack the Philistines, and they lose 4,000 men. Well, here's what happens. They regather. They get a, 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 a greater army of Israelites together. And they go, you know what we didn't do? We didn't do the religious thing. We, we need to do the religious thing. Let's get the ark of God in here. Because, you know, we're God's chosen people. And they get the ark of God in the camp and they shout a great shout. And the, they shouted so loud it says the ground trembled. And that the Philistines heard it over in their camp and they thought, man, what's going on in the, in the, in the camp of the Israelites? Man, something's really happening. And, and the Philistine men had encouraged themselves and said, hey, take heart, Philistines. Well, here's what happened. They had all the religious trappings, but they didn't have the power of God. They had the language. They had the exteriors. But they were away from God. And even with the Ark of the Covenant, they go presumptuously running in to fight the Philistines, and now instead of losing 4,000, they lose 30,000, and they lose the ark. That's a bad day. Eli, both of his sons die. Eli hears the news. He falls over backwards. He dies. His daughter-in-law is giving birth at the very moment. She hears the news of of Eli's death and of, of his two sons' deaths. She says, call my son Ichabod, the glory has departed. Beloved, it's in that context of incredible crisis that God brings Samuel forth as a prophet to bring deliverance. The next couple chapters are kind of funny. The, The Philistines, they get the ark, but they don't know what to do with the ark, so they put it in the temple of their god Dagon. They come in the next day, and Dagon's bowing down to the ark. I mean, that's not good. Put the, set Dagon back up. Come in the next day and Dagon's bowing down again and this time his head and arms are off. That's not a good sign. Set him back up. Well, what happens is the Lord strikes the Philistine and they, they get a, I don't know how to say it, they get a hemorrhoids. They, just, they all get hemorrhoids. That's what they get. New King James, NIV, they straighten it out. They say tumors. But the uh, good old classic King James says they got emerods in, the, in, their, in their private areas. That's what this says. They got hemorrhoids. So the whole nation is smitten with this plague of hemorrhoids. And they, the Lord's, I don't know. I don't know. He just, that's what he did. And uh, they call in the priest of Dagon. They go, what do we do? They go, he go, they go you got to make a sacrifice to the, the God of the Israelites. He's you know, obviously not happy that we've got the ark. 
Give him a, a sacrifice. Make uh, five golden uh, hemorrhoids and give them to the Lord. That's what they do. Five rats, five golden hemorrhoids. I'm sure that's what Jehovah is wanting. It's just odd. They said, man, do that and get this ark out of here. And they'll say, and then they say, if they, just put it on a cart and let the, let the horses, uh, let the cattle carry it. And if they, if they take it right back to the Jews, then we know this is God. And those horses, they go right back to the Jews with the ark. And so the, uh, the ark, it rests at Kiriath-Jerim. And, and it stays there until David goes to get it. But here's how the Lord establishes Samuel. I'm going to land with this. And, uh, and uses Samuel as a deliverer. Uh, when the ark set carried the Jerem, um, Samuel, he, he, he calls together the house of Israel. And let's pick it up in 1 Samuel 7, verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord, there it is. That's the repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and, and the asterisks from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals, the asterisks, and they serve the Lord only. Look at that revival. They put away the Baals and the asterisks and they serve the Lord only. Verse five, and Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mitzvah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered Together at Mitzpah, drew water, poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted that day and said, We have sinned against the Lord. They're turning to the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mitzpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. This is actually one of my favorite stories of deliverance. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us. They said, do a prayer meeting. Night and day. So we get deliverance from the enemy. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Here he is. He's engaging the Philistines in a military way, but he's doing it with intercession. And watch how the Lord answers. Now, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to the battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And Israel goes after them, and the Philistines take flight. And it's such a massive turning point for the nation of Israel. We get to verse 13, and it says, So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. They did not come into the territory of Israel anymore. The whole status and political scenario of the nation shifts on a dime at the intercessions of this prophetic man who's consecrated and sold out to the Lord and lives as a Nazarite. Beloved, I'm telling you, God can shift a nation on a dime if a people will give themselves to consecrated lifestyles before the Lord. They'll give themselves to wholehearted abandonment to God. I'm looking at 2012 and I'm saying, Lord, I I get it. I I do. I believe it. You're calling us to a season of Nazarite consecration. What if we really go for it? 
What will happen in the spirit? What will happen with our prayers? What will you do? Will you actually anoint us, even like a company of Samuels that cry out and you'll bring deliverance? Maybe you'll even shift things in our city. Maybe you'll even shift things in our nation. What if a Nazarite forerunner company arises in America crying out to God, living in holiness, and the Lord anoints them with prophetic words and power that pierce men's hearts and never fall to the ground? I'm telling you, I believe Samuel's life is a picture of where God wants to take the church. I thought about that day. Can you imagine? There he is. He's making intercession. He's making the sacrifice. The Lord loves to answer sacrifice. He falls like fire on Elijah's sacrifice, and he comes like thunder on Samuel's sacrifice. And as he's sacrificing to the Lord, such intense thunder hits the camp of the Philistines, they're overwhelmed by it. Now, what does that look like? You and I have been there where it's been a loud thunder crack, and you kind of, whoa, and the house shakes. The Lord is hitting them with such a thunder, the thunder causes them to give up and to run. Beloved, it's what, it's what Elihu talked about in the book of Job. A voice proclaims, and the Lord thunders. He wants to raise up a whole company, a Nazarite company, a consecrated company, a, a company of sanctified ones, of consecrated ones, that when they declare and when they pray, he thunders behind it with deliverance. Man, I'm feeling it. I, I, I want to dream, dream crazy big. I, you know, I, I, I don't want to make presumptuous proclamations. I believe that our nation is in a crisis situation. I'm not even talking about our economy. I don't really even care about our economy. It would probably be good if our economy stays in the tank. Because we are so, you know, settled in our comforts, we don't look to God. And I believe, man, it would be helpful if the Lord starved us out even more. So that we'd actually pray and turn to the Lord. But, oh... I'm talking about the moral and the spiritual crisis our nation is in. The things that have become politically incorrect, it's crazy. If you say homosexuality is a sin, you're a hater. But there has got to be a massive revival in our nation. I tell you, I believe the Lord wants to raise up a company of Samuels, a Samuel company, Nazarites, who when they pray, God thunders. Man, I want that. I I want when I pray, God thunders and brings deliverance. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. I just want to get on with it. I just want to get on with it. Hearts abandoned to God in love, carried by grace, consecrated, sold out, but ending up operating in real authority in the spirit. A prophetic company with power, declaring the gospel, declaring the truth of Jesus, calling men and women to repentance, 
And God answering the prayers and the proclamations with thunder. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. I want to pray for the Hannahs. I want to ask the Lord to bring fruitfulness, to bring forth the Samuels out of your life. So often we've imagined our barrenness is somehow self-inflicted or sin-inflicted, and the Lord at times will starve us out to let the longing go deep so that we'll cry out. When Hannah intercedes, when grace and supplication meet, Samuel's God hears. God hears. So if you resonate with that message of of Hannah, one called as an intercessor to birth forth deliverance in the kingdom, deliverers and deliverance, I want you to come forward. And then I also want to pray for those that resonate with that forerunner, Samuel, John the Baptist, DNA. And just If you're like me, I'm just sitting here going, God, I want it. I want all of it. I want all of it. If you connect with that, I just want to invite you forward. I want to ask the Lord to come. 2012, oh, what a, what a year. What an opportunity. Come, Holy Spirit, right now. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, here we are. Here we are. You've given us these men, these pictures. You've given us Samson and Samuel and John the Baptist. You've given us these Nazarites in the Scripture as pictures. Here we are, Lord. We just, we want to get on with it. Lord, as you're dealing with us to go into a season of holiness under the Lord, to be all yours, I pray, God, even right now, you would set fire on our soul. You would set fire on our hearts. You would set fire on the inside. God, just as you did with Hannah, when you allowed the the pain to go deep, to bring her to that place of intercession, that birth deliverance. God, do it in us. God, we don't want to be barren for the rest of our lives. God, I'm asking for grace and supplication to meet and for you to kiss it with fire that an entire generation of Samuels would come forth. God, let this be the hour. Let this be the season when you bring a dramatic shift, a dramatic change in a nation, just like you did with Samuel, just like you did with John the Baptist. Could it be could shift it on a dime how could it be God I pray you'd open the spiritual womb 
of many Hannahs and bring forth Samuels, God. God has heard. God has heard. God has heard. God has heard. Come, Holy Spirit. We will not be satisfied with our barrenness, Abba. We will not strive in the flesh and get into presumption and try to fight the enemy in our own strength. 